Welcome to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP, helping you to operate profitably and adapt continuously. Host and moderator Bonnie D. Graham talks with the experts about how game-changing technologies can help you achieve financial excellence for your company. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, this is where the best run, but you already knew that. This is season nine of our longest running series of Game Changers, Financial Excellence with Game Changers Radio. Happy to be here. And let's see what the buzz on the street is today. Okay, I have a quote from financialexecutives.org. Listen up. Unlocking the potential of machine learning for the Office of Finance remains a hot topic for financial planning and analysis leaders, that's FP&A for those in the know, industry analysts and technology vendors alike. So let me give you a little more background and then I will introduce my esteemed panelists. During these tumultuous times, and I don't have to tell all of you, this is we're early June 2020, some businesses are starting to emerge, reopen from the pandemic shutdown, some businesses never close, some are worried they may never open, but finance still has to do their job. So organizations, finance organizations, in particular need better tools and technologies to predict the future. Why? Well, I wouldn't want to be a CFO, CFO right now because they're under huge pressure now more than ever. They have to make sense of the internal and external factors to evaluate the impact of lines of credit, working capital, sales targets, and expense reduction. And they also have to pursue new business opportunities because that's what CFOs and finance do. So we have good news. Many CFOs and FP&A teams are already using what we used to call disruptive technologies. I don't think that qualifies anymore in the current global disruption, machine learning and predictive analytics to get closer to that elusive word called certainty. However, there are some challenges. Can finance trust these new technologies? Hmm. When they're fully deployed, how do these technologies impact operations and the role of finance itself? And how is company leadership positioned on handling these challenges? We're going to today ask Brian Kalish at Kalish Consulting, who's been on the show many times before, Jeff Hattendorf at Macrospect, also a returning guest, and Pras Chatterjee at SAP, one of the sponsors of the series, for their insights on our topic today, Leveraging Predictive Planning to Ease Uncertainty. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Happy to be here. And let's start going around the table and asking my panelists, in case, Brian Kalish, in case there's one person in the world who doesn't know who you are, talk to that person and introduce yourself and tell us what your, briefly what your passion is for this topic. Brian, welcome back. Well, thank you so very much, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be here today with both uh, Jeff and, uh, and Praz. Um, I'm Brian Kalish. Uh, I have my own consulting firm. Uh, previously, I have about 25 years of experience in uh, FP&A, Treasury Investor Relations. Um, my real focus right now is helping organizations create a culture of analytics for data-driven decision-making. So uh, everyone has different challenges. Right now, I, I see us operating in a, bif excuse me, a trifurcated world. We have companies that are very quiet. So if you think about leisure, uh, not much going on there. We have companies that are extraordinarily um, busy because of their in groceries, CPG. Um, and then we have companies that I consider are pivoting. So organizations like retail, where you've gone from a situation of going, you know, all your stores have closed, but then all of a sudden everything shifted on to online. 
And what's, what has been really incredible, what I've spent a lot of my time in, is just how important what state you're in, what county you're in, what zip code you're in, and being able to get that insight to see what's actually happening. I mean, it's never been more important to have what we consider speed to insight, but also at the speed of thought. And so that's really where the focus has been. And the way that we're getting there is we're leveraging our people and using great technology. Uh, one of the big challenges that I've, that I've seen over time has been culture. And culture has gotten, gotten blown out of the water over the last three months. So companies that were resistant to change, as you were saying, maybe weren't so keen on disruptive technology or truly embracing it now. Um, and so for those companies that are busy in the current environment, um, there's actually a lot of spend that's going on. People are really trying to leverage, again, their people, their technology, their processes. They're finding out where there's a lot of challenges when you know they got very used to going down the hallway and talking to someone, whereas now you've mm-hmm. got to do it through Zoom or some other format. Thank you, Brian. Great overview. I love the comment you made about the speed of thought. Very interesting. We, we can address that later in the show. I like that. Uh, and the question is, who is having the thoughts? Who is thinking the thoughts? Who is communicating the thoughts? And we've also seen many businesses retool, reprioritize. We see manufacturers of XYZ now making ventilators. We see bars and, and uh, distilleries making hand sanitizer. We see industrial manufacturers who never would have thought in a million years they would be making N95 masks for frontline health workers. So we have seen businesses that were ready to pivot, that were flexible, that were agile, being able to say, ah, there's a need let's step up and meet that need. So it has been an interesting environment. I am, by the way, disclaimer to our audience, we are on Zoom here. So I have the pleasure of looking into the eyes of my panelists and watching their expressions as I'm talking to them. So if I say something about referencing what I'm seeing, forgive me, but this is a new era in radio. It's called the Zoom era of audio radio. Jeff Hattendorf is next. Jeff, so happy to see you for the first time. And Jeff, in case there's, in addition to that one person who didn't remember who Brian is, there might be one person who doesn't remember you. So please introduce yourself and share with us a little bit about your insights on the topic. Jeff. So as a professional, I spent the last 25 years implementing different kinds of systems. The majority of that has been hands-on keyboard or process re-engineering around the FP&A process. That's, that's 16 or 17 years of that time frame. And my job today is overseeing all the projects that we're, we're working with. And that's on companies as large as PepsiCo to smaller companies who are about a billion in revenue. But it's all multinationals, companies with lots of data. And our challenge with all of these clients is to get them to not just think about what they're doing today, but what should they be doing differently tomorrow? And so on this topic, you know, we'll talk about this as we get into the show. There's, there's more data than most companies can manage. And it's hard to get them to understand that if they don't make investments now, they're going to fall behind the curve. And, you know, the, the impact of COVID, how many of my clients actually had a, a plan in their FP&A? What, what version of the plan did they say, I'm not getting any of my supply chain deliveries for the next three months because all of our supply chain is shut down? Or I've got six plants that have to be shut down because there's people infected with COVID at the plant. No one had those plans because there's not enough time in the day to put those plans together let alone to analyze all the data that would be needed to, to begin to decide what's the right fit for the business. So these kind of topics get my inner nerd very excited. Your inner nerd, is, is that a new part of Jeff Hattendorf, your inner nerd? I just try to suppress my nerdness a little bit from time to time. So I try and say <laughs> it's my inner nerd, like my inner child, but I'm, I'm a nerd. 
There's no I, doubt about it. I wouldn't suppress it. I'm a, I'm a nerd too. I don't know if you know, Jeff, but I'm a programmer from back in, I've been told that I'm one of the early women in tech. I was a programmer analyst working for the state of Oregon, coding in COBOL on a Xerox Sigma 6 CP5, Brian's nodding, stepping up on a stool <laughs> to be able to put the disk pack into the, into the tray, if you will, when I was learning what to, I took operations and programming and they ended up hiring me to run a statewide system right out of school. But it was interesting. So you talk about a nerd. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a, a valid. I still have green bar paper here, Jeff. And I still, <laughs> I still have my COBOL book. And I used to be able to debug a core dump like nobody's business. Eventually went to an IBM 4341 and coded in PL1 for a statewide secondary school system. And uh, those, those were the days. So I'm proud to be a, a nerd. I really am. Jeff, welcome to my, welcome to my world. I think I got here before you did. Waiting <laughs> patiently is Pras Chatterjee. Everybody knows Pras because he's on the show all the time. Pras, welcome back. And why don't you just for the heck of it, reintroduce yourself to our listeners. Hey, Bonnie. Uh, thanks for having me here again. I love being here. I have a great time on the show, and I know I'm going to have a great time today as well. Um, so again, Pras Chatterjee, I'm part of the product team at SAP focusing on our planning and analysis solutions. I absolutely love this space. I mean, it's a true passion of mine, uh, primarily because I worked here for almost 10 years in various capacities. And then I spent about five, six years helping different organizations uh, make use of their data to help make better decisions. And now I'm really an evangelist in this area for SAP, helping organizations understand where they are and where they possibly could be. And uh, I think a lot of this really resonates with me, uh, primarily because both uh, Jeff and Brian mentioned two key words, data. And it's interesting what you know, data can do. It gives you the opportunity to analyze a lot more and you know, come up with better decisions. Uh, but recently, I um, actually commissioned a study and a survey amongst uh, FP&A uh, uh, professionals. And what they told me was that they actually spend almost um, you know, something crazy, like 42% of organizations still spend um, uh, uh, sorry, 42% of finance individuals spend um, their time on low-value activity, uh, value-added activities, meaning that they really can't make sense of the data or analyze. Uh, so, hopefully, through the course of this call, we'll be able to uh, anal- uh, you know understand different alternatives and options to help them get from you know to analyze more, do more value-added activities like understanding some of these disruptive technologies and how it works for them. Thank you, Pras. Pras, great insights. And you and your team at SAP, who sponsor this series, Financial Excellence with Game Changers, came up with the title for today's episode, Leveraging Predictive Planning to Ease Uncertainty. How close do you think that this will all help, quote unquote, ease uncertainty? Is there such a thing that it will ease? Do you think anytime soon? I'm looking for optimism, obviously. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we found that's come up out of this, um, just by evaluating uh, internally our networks and also even one of our competitors on their earnings call, they mentioned this as well, is that during this time, they've seen FP&A individuals plan and plan scenarios at 30 times the rate of what they normally do, which is which means that indiv- uh, organizations are coming to the FP&A department and saying, hey, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, when it comes to uh, using our credit lines, um, uh, you know, what's our working capital status, uh, how, the supply chain disruption, the impact of all of this and modeling those scenarios over and over again based on different permutations and combinations and what the end result may, uh, might be um, is really put a lot of stress on FP&A. And I think they now have to look amongst themselves and especially a lot of the organizations uh, that we see 
Um, it's time to move away from Excel and classic and legacy technology and move to something better. Um, oftentimes, people ask me, hey, who's your biggest competitor in this market? It's not my stated competitors. I think we all agree the biggest competitor in this market is Microsoft Excel because so many FP&A departments are still entrenched in legacy spreadsheets. And what this crisis has shown is that if you're going to do scenario planning, if you're going to embrace predictive technologies, if you're going to take the truly next step, you can't work you know, uh, in, with yesterday's tools. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Thank you, Pras. Thank you all. Great introductions and great overview. Now it's the time of the show when I have asked my guests to spend a little bit of extra time finding a quote that technically has absolutely nothing to do with our topic. And I'm going to ask them each to explain how they pick the quote and what it does have to do with the topic in their own words. So Brian Kalish, you're up first. And Brian has sent us a quote from Edward Teller, 1908 to 2003, a Hungarian-American theoretical physicist colloquially known as, for better or for worse, and he didn't like this, the father of the hydrogen bomb. He was on the team that developed it, but he didn't like that. Uh, let me see here. He immigrated to the U.S. in the 1930s, one of many so-called Martians. I don't know if you knew this, Brian. He was a Martian, a group of prominent Hungarian scientist emigres. We'll just leave it there. Here's the quote. The science of today is the technology of tomorrow. Brian Kalish, please unpack this for me. Absolutely. Well, the point for me is being that what – the, the rate of change is so great in technology that what we see as science fiction is now what we're consider common uh, practice. So I, the story that I like to use, and I'll date myself fairly, is if you think about Star I'm a huge believer that all technology is based on Star Trek, the TV series from the 1960s. And if you think about all the incredible devices they had in 1960s, um, and again, that was science fiction. But what were they? What they have? They had communicators. Well, that's what we have today. We have smartphones. Um, they had, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the communications officer, Lieutenant Uhura, she had an earpiece, right, which was extraordinary. Well, that's Bluetooth. Um, Scotty, uh, who was the chief engineer, would talk to his computer, right? That's science fiction. Well, no, that's natural process, natural language processing today. So. For me, it kind of leans, and I'll, I'll lean in a little bit into Einstein, too, is that imagination is more important than knowledge because un, uh, imagination is unlimited and knowledge is limited. So the idea being that what we can imagine, we can have. And that's why it's so important to me. And that's what we're seeing because a lot of the questions that we couldn't answer 12, 24, 36 months, not years, months ago, we actually can now address because of the incredible advancements we're making in technology. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate the quote. And it sounds like a precursor of the common quote that is sometimes attributed to Drucker, to Alan Kay. If you want to predict the future, you have to create it. You have to invent it. That quote has been bandied around. And, and I use quote investigator extensively. And I love reading all of that. Is it? Did Churchill say it? Did Abraham Lincoln say it? Did Einstein say it? It's, it's always interesting. So that sounds like that. I love the idea that all new technology came from Star Trek. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing when you said that. Even Jeff is laughing. There you go. See, everybody, I can see them, even though you're only hearing our voices on radio. Radio has changed. Okay. So, Jeff Hattendorf, you're next. And Jeff has picked a, oh, an interesting quote from A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. The original name was A Christmas Carol in prose. 
Being a Ghost Story of Christmas, commonly known as A Christmas Carol, a novella by Charles Dickens, first published in London in 1843. Interestingly enough, the first edition on December 19th, Jeff, the first edition sold out by Christmas Eve. It was published six days before Christmas. It sold out in six days. By the end of 1844, 13 editions had been released, and A Christmas Carol has never been out of print. It's been translated into many languages and, of course, as we know, adapted for film, stage, opera, and other media. What's interesting to me is that the story was illegally copied in 1844 by someone else. Dickens sued the publishers. They went bankrupt, but they the, the lawsuit reduced Dickens' small profits from the publication. Just interesting. Here's the quote, everybody. Listen up. I'm not going to do a Scrooge voice because I don't know what it would sound like, but I always try to impersonate whoever I'm quoting. So, it's not my bit. I will try. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Jeff, how did I do? I think that was pretty good. And, and now <laughs> I feel like I know the rest of the story, too. <laughs> Go ahead. How did you pick a quote from Dickens, for goodness sake, for a radio show that's being done on Zoom on the Internet that everybody can hear without wires? Go ahead. Well, so whenever we prep for the show, I, I like to go back and, and, and find something that's a little bit related to the topic. And when I saw this quote, it, it just it struck me that most of the clients I work with are so busy trying to improve what they do. They're not looking at what anyone else is doing. And there's a little bit of sense, even within the organization, IT and finance don't always get along. In fact, often they're at odds because there's a little bit of a confrontational relationship. The 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 people within the business don't want to worry about what someone else's job is, is and how they're working. We as an organization don't want to look at what the rest of the world is doing. If I manage my business, I feel like I'm going to be good enough. And if, if COVID-19 has not proven this to us, I don't know what will. But if you're not planning for all the businesses upstream that feed into your organization and all the downstream consumers of what you produce and, and how they all interplay, I mean, it, without the, the stimulus package in the U.S. and the countries around the world, the worldwide economy would have locked up because of all of our all of our supply chains are interconnected and you have to know what's happening outside of your world it's just not possible to be successful and sustain a business without that knowledge very interesting jeff i did a show on um, manufacturing becoming more customer centric the other day and the advice from the panelists was you should be looking at the sentiments and the satisfaction of the end user of your product, but be careful not to alienate the middle person or the distributor. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an interesting challenge. So who is actually, regardless of where they buy it, whether they buy it online, curbside, in a reopened store, wherever they're buying it, how happy are they with your product, regardless of how it got to them? So that's not, I think that goes even further in terms of paying attention, as you said, to supply chain, upstream, downstream, but looking at who is going to ultimately have use of that, make use of that, whether it's B2B, B2C, and what do they think of your product and what is their impact on your business? Am I right on that, Jeff? Absolutely. We've got a client that we're, we've just started working with and they've used some predictive technologies to begin to allocate inventory that's scarce. And in one of their iterations, they took the predicted model and they didn't allocate to one of their big retailers. So they sold all the product, but that retailer stopped buying for them for, for 12 months. And it actually had a negative impact on their sales for the year because the predictive model missed some of the relationship things that, that the people had to be aware of and, and build in. And it's exactly right. If you don't take care of all parts of the, of the, 
the path to the customer, you put yourself at risk. Thank you very much. A new type of risk they didn't even think about a while ago, right? They, they can't just be taking care of their own business. Pros, I always say my third panelist is waiting patiently, and often they say, no, I'm not very patient, but now I can see that you are. You're very polite. Pros has sent us a quote from a, a woman I've never heard of, and I'm very happy to be introduced to her. Her name is Roberta Bondar, B-O-N-D-A-R. She's a Canadian astronaut. She's got all kinds of letters after her name. I get to call her a young woman. She was born in 1945. No, she is older than me, but I still get to call her a young woman. She's Canada's first female astronaut and the first neurologist in space. After more than a decade as the head of an international space medicine research team, wow, I bet that was exciting, collaborating with NASA, Roberta Bondar became a consultant and speaker in the business, scientific, and medical communities. She's received many honors. She was one of six original Canadian astronauts selected in 1983 and began training in 84. In 92, she was designated the payload specialist for the first international microgravity laboratory mission, and she she flew on the NASA Space Shuttle Discovery during mission STS-42 in January 1992. I'm going to leave it at that. Here's the quote press selected. Exploration is not something you retire from. It is a part of one's life ethic. I like this quote, Pras. How did you find this? So uh, Roberta Bondar has had an amazing impact on my life through my daughter because uh, my daughter is currently going into grade four, but when she was in kindergarten, she had the chance to meet Roberta Bondar at school. She came to speak to her kindergarten class and read them a story, and it was amazing. And you know, my daughter actually looks at her as a role model about what is possible, and it's you know I think it's wonderful for my daughter to have such a strong role model, you know, about what is possible for you know someone who's a neurologist and so accomplished in space. But um, you know, um, the quote about exploration is really about never giving up always searching and not being constrained by limits but you know thinking about you know what might be considered impossible and you know overcoming that and you know space is definitely that final frontier going back to brian's uh, uh, star trek uh, cadence there but um you know I, so far you know when i tie this back to fpna and planning analysis i think often a lot of the people we work with are limited by their uh, constraints of what they have on hand, the technology, the processes. And oftentimes I think, you know, they can overcome the technology, but the processes that they have handicap what they can or cannot do. And I, these are things that can very easily be overcome just by combining them together, uh, working within yourself, working with your customers, being the business partners that you have, thinking about the end customer who is consuming your goods, your products, your services, and how you can service all of these together and better using modern technology and knowing that nothing is really impossible. Things can really be done quicker. Things can be done faster. And if, if you think about this profession, financial planning and analysis, people really want to spend more less time planning and a lot more time doing the analysis. And there's mm -hmm. nothing holding them back other than the limits of their own imagination. I like that. Great quotes all. I appreciate the time you all took to research and bring me some really interesting pieces for our quotes segment today. Now it's time for us to dive into the real roundtable section of the show, the segment. And Brian Kalish, you're up first. Brian, I'm scanning your notes here. I think we've covered a little bit of one and two, but since we want to talk about technology, I'm going to ask you to talk about number three. So you say FP&A teams must focus on how they can leverage advances in RPA, that's robotic process automation, in order to liberate their high IQ people 
from low IQ activities. I, I think people are threatened by this, but I'm not going to make any comments here. Brian Kalish, why don't you take about two and a half minutes or so and tell us what this all means for our topic on trying to predictively plan to deal with the uncertainty. So Brian Kalish, you're up. And then I'll ask Jeff to comment and then Pross. Go ahead, Brian. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, and just adding on to what Pras was just saying was that, you know, again, consultants, we all have our little lingo. So I, one of the things is the three C's. It's capacity, capability, and collaboration. And if you don't have capacity, that's where it stops, right? If you spend, the silly example I kind of use is if, it's, if it takes 30 days to do the close, all you do is the close, right? You don't have time for anything else. As Pras was alluding to earlier, you know, you could go back 30 years and ask CFOs, you know, what are their finance FP&A people spending their time on? And it's 70% in data acquisition, reconciliation, and verification. And those numbers really haven't changed. It's beginning, the needle's beginning to move a little bit right now. Um, but what's really going to change it, what we're really going to do is liberate our people. I really am a big fan of automation equals liberation is, is RPA. And basically, when we're talking about robotic process automation, is basically any process an organization has that can be mapped can be automated. And the first thing that I always run into when I kind of take on these assignments with organizations, they go, well, this is a really complex, you know, process. And I go, yes, but can we map it? And they go, yes, then I can automate it. If it can be mapped, it can be automated. doesn't matter what the complexity is. And so the idea is we take these processes off of people's plates. So as Bonnie, you were saying, there's a lot of people that are threatened by the term automation. Mm -hmm. uh, what I found in my work is senior management usually loves it because they see all the benefits of it. And we can spend a little bit of time on that. Um, junior people, they love it because you know what? These miserable tasks that people are doing, they never want to do. And it's the people in the middle that are concerned. And the, what I try to explain to them is tell me your worst hour every day. Hmm. What do you hate spending an hour on? And they'll tell me. And I go, great, I want to take that off your plate. And they're like, oh, you can? I go, yeah. And that will free you up to do those higher level activities, to actually get humans out of doing task-based activities and doing what's really important is the analysis. And so I'm, I'm a believer, I'm an extreme believer in RPA. I think everything that can be rpa away is going to be in the next couple of years because we just need to free our people up to do the analysis because of the you know changing world that we operate in. And we've got to be able to pivot and have that agility to do so. Thank you, Brian Kalish. Very interesting. Let's go around the table and get agree or disagree comments from next is Jeff Hattendorf. So I agree 100% with what Brian's talking about. There, there exists in the rank and file in every organization a great deal of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And the, the fear and the uncertainty is about what does my job look like? Will I have a job? Um, mm -hmm. And it's not just because they don't understand the tool or the technology. You can really take an hour out of my day, but what, where's my value if I don't have that hour of work in my hands? But, you know, someone like Elon Musk is already talking about we need to regulate artificial intelligence because of all the things it might do. Other forward thinking people have said by 2029 or 2030 that AI will run the world and, and we may get to a situation where we've got HAL or Skynet that, that the computers just objectively go, oh, humans are the problem. So, so these, the science fiction that, that, that helps us with these, these toys, with these earpieces that we're using for these phone calls and with the, with the phones themselves, it helps us envision the future. Sometimes it paints a scary picture. And so there has to be more education at the lowest level of the organization 
and the highest that this isn't about eliminating your job. It's about redefining in a way that you're adding more value so that, that you're worth the money you're being paid and you're not doing those, those low IQ tasks on a day-to-day repetitive basis. Thank you, Jeff. That, so that calls into question the, the leadership of the company or of the finance organization, explaining, taking people through the change management process, redefining, upskilling their jobs without saying, you're gone. Bob, the robot's going to do everything you were doing, but we can now give you something that's more exciting. However, exciting can be translated to, damn, I have to rethink and relearn everything I've been doing. All Brian is shaking his head. I have to relearn and rethink everything I've been doing all these years. You're telling me now at this point in my career, I, there, there are a lot of decisions to be made. Jeff, any comments on that? Well, that's the reason that Proz will tell you, or he said earlier in the show, the biggest competitor he faces is not some other logo on the marketplace. It's Excel because we all know Excel and I know how to make it do really cool things. And Microsoft 10 years ago took us from 64,000 rows to a million rows because we're doing so many things with Excel that it was never intended to, to, to do for us. People are creatures of habit. And it takes someone with some vision and some leadership to guide people, particularly large groups of people, in a new direction. And leadership is necessary now. Thank you. We agree. Pras Chatterjee, you're up. Thoughts on what Brian introduced and or what Jeff added or even what I added? Go ahead, Sure. Um, yeah, obviously, I mean, I think I agree with uh, what they say. I think where um, uh, Brian, uh, sorry, Jeff brought up uh, finance being creatures of habit. And um, I think, you know, and I wonder how much of it is being creatures of a habit or uh, rather their education. The fact that, you know, I come from a accounting background myself and I'm an expert in reading income mm-hmm. statements, balance sheets and cash flow statements. I write, ex- I've written exams in this area and, um, but my education didn't prepare me for the future, I would say. I was never taught statistics. I've never taught you doing true analysis and really um, you're creating a story behind things. Uh, someone, a CFO once told me when I was in an FPA, my FPA role that I was 90% there to being a really an amazing analyst. And I said, well, where's the 10%? He said, the 10% is you being able to tell a story, not produce numbers, but being able to tell a story behind the numbers. And, uh, you know, I've talked about research and data, and this is something that we can discuss. And it might shock my uh, co-panelists and even you, Bonnie, but part of my research this year, when we surveyed FP&A directors and CFOs, mm-hmm. uh, they came back and told us, that were surveyed said that they didn't see themselves being strategic or that they didn't see um, themselves being worthy of investing in their own technology, even though they signed the checks for everyone else. So isn't that crazy that this space that has so much potential, you know, Brian talked about RPA, you know, freeing the reins so that they can, you know, mm-hmm. do, do true analysis and such. They just, I, I don't know if it's a matter of confidence or the matter of that they've just been doing the same old for so long that they don't see the value in themselves. And if they don't see the value in themselves, the rest of the organizations I can see it either. Job security. What am I going to do next? Especially now, will people be going back to work? Will they stay at home? How will they negotiate and manage their family situations, their work situations, the discipline required to work at home? All kinds of process. Very, very interesting statistic. I'm going to do something I don't usually do. Brian and, and Jeff, I'd like you to react to the, the study that Pross just quoted. Uh, what do you think of that 61%? Brian first? Um, I think it, it, it I'm not that surprised just talking mm-hmm. to people. It's interesting, Pras, the, the, the piece that I took, <clears throat> you were saying, you know, the background in accounting and the, and the gap that you had making that leap to, to FP&A. One of the observations that I had, and freely, you know, I'm biased because I come from an engineering background, is the number of senior FP&A people I run into who 
started or at some point in their career studied engineering because engineering is about solving problems, not mm -hmm. following a set of rules and going through a process. So I think, you know, when you strip away all the school, all the education, the number one characteristic for successful FP&A people is curiosity. So if you give me a curious person, I can make a great FP&A person because they, they, they ask the question, why? Because to kind of to the point, hopefully I'm addressing it, is that we all kind of get used to the status quo. It works. Why do I want to change things? Humans don't like change. You know, we can, we can talk about that all day long. We could probably have a session on it, Bonnie, about change management. But, you know, humans don't like it. And so how do you move the needle? How do you, you know, move the ball down the field? Is someone asking the question, why? Is there a better way to do this? How do we get the question? And I think right now we're in an extraordinary period of time because like war, you need to um, uh, be innovative, right? We've got a new challenge and we've got to think about doing things in a new way. So I see companies that are busy, you know, are really beginning to look at how they can improve not just their technology, but like you said, the skill set of their people, but also the processes they're utilizing. Thank you, Brian. I want to add one point here. You said the question is why, and I'm going to add to that. The question should be sometimes why not? Somebody has an idea of a new technology, a new process, right, Pross? And Absolutely. Jeff, you can you can not. I'm going to come to Jeff next. Uh, somebody says why not? So, for example, I I went to uh, the people who co-produced the these shows with me, and I said why not? Why can't we use Zoom so we can finally see, look into the eyes of our panelists while we're on audio radio? Why not? And the question was. Well, of course we can. Stop asking people, do you want to, and just say, why not? We will, we will expand. I know it's a very, very moderate, very small example, but the example is there. Why not use what we know is a workable technology? Jeff Hattendorf, I'm getting off the topic. Why don't you bring us back to it? Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I, I, I'm not surprised by the results of that study, but I, I tend to see that people have this, they cling to this idea, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if you don't recognize there's a problem, you may believe or you may mark down in a survey that you're not worth the education or the training. But if it's always worked, why would I want to make any changes? And I think there's this fundamental piece that I think this technology is still disruptive because it's not being used enough or in any, any, any large way. Because in this space, at least, that because people don't, don't recognize that there's a problem yet. And it's, it shows like this where when we talk about it, someone's going to go, oh, and it's that person who is going to take their curiosity that Brian alluded to and be innovative within their company. And that company will excel at the expense of their competitors. There you go. I like that. Pras, I'm glad you brought that study up. That was good food for thought. I appreciate that. Jeff, I'm looking at your discussion statements you sent me before the show. I think we've covered one, two, and three. I want to go into number four. I think there's some nuggets in here we can use to, to keep the conversation going. Jeff said the following, in most companies, finance collects, rationalizes, and distributes key financial and statistical data, both internally and externally. Forward-thinking CFOs must leverage emerging technologies to exist this human skill set to do the same with the exponentially growing ocean of data. That's what I want to talk about, Jeff. Ocean of data to more effectively plan and manage the business. So 
the data has been growing for years and years and years, Jeff. We talk about data swamps and data lakes and data oceans. And is the data clean? And is the data fresh? And is it worth harvesting? And what are you going to do with it? And actionable insights. And we've heard all of this terminology for as long as I've been doing these radio shows for nine years. So what's the latest in terms of harnessing the data? And with the business slowdown, Jeff, has the data slowed down? Or is it just different data? Help me out here. So let, let's put some statistics around this just to, to measure it. So in yeah. 2017, IDC and PwC said that we had about 4.7 zettabytes of data. A zettabyte is a trillion gigabytes. It's a lot of data. Today, they think it's 44 billion. It'll be 175 billion by 2025. At current internet speeds, it would take you 1.8 billion years to download that data. So there is more information than we can manage. And as I was doing just a little bit of research around this topic um, for one of our clients, I came across the term dark data. And that's a term that Gartner's defined. And dark data is the data that businesses collect in normal normal day-to-day business, but does not use. And mm-hmm. if you look at different studies, it's anywhere from 75 to 85% of that of data that businesses collect is dark. It doesn't get used for anything. And you, you dig into the root cause of it, and 85% of clients or customers polled said, we don't have the right tools. Another 40% said that, what was that number? There's just too much data. So they don't, they don't think it's, for most people, it's not that there's too much data, which I would argue there probably is, it's we don't have the right tools. And I go back to this idea, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If people don't recognize the opportunity, you can read lots of articles that talk about data mining as, as the new oil boom, that we got all this data, but no one's getting out there and working with it. Why is that? Is it overwhelming? We don't have the tools. We don't have the education, as Prada alluded to earlier. Brian talked about, we maybe we don't have enough curious people within the FP&A space. The, the Office of Finance, particularly the FP&A team, traditionally takes data from all kinds of sources within the business, operational data, and mashes that into, into their financial data. We publish numbers on a consolidated basis with IFRS and gap reporting, but we also do the managerial reporting. We tell the street for publicly traded companies where we're going to go or how we got to where we are. There is so much information that is, let me take that back. There is so much data that is not being converted into actionable information that, that we're missing huge opportunities as organizations. Some of it's just, they're simply not out of time. But I think the real reason is the human person can't consume this much data. You have to go, but what Brian was talking to was you have to use RPA. You have to use machine learning tools that can sort through and filter and and distill that data to something that I can begin to understand as a human and make it actionable information for both internal and external use. Jeff, it sounds like there's really no choice. You have to automate, right? You, you have to. If you there, want to. there isn't a choice. You can't hire enough people to, yep. to churn through these da- this data because everyone has their little view and their little view is going to be a small snippet. And I need to be able to see the small snippets in a big picture. Thank you. Small snippets in a big picture. Pras, you're up next. Why don't you react, please respond to what Jeff just shared. Well, I mean, uh, what Jeff said is correct, and but my feeling is that it's just going to get even worse and worse. I mean, Jeff brought up some numbers. I'm also going to be bring up some statistics. I mean, part of what I uh, my research based on what FPNA does with the analytics, I found that um, only 26% of organizations spend their time, uh, or FPNA departments spend their time generating insights or driving actions. The rest of the time, 74% is spent on collecting data, massaging data, making the data fit, 
validating the, the data. And if that's where you are in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic with Microsoft Excel as your primary tool or some legacy technology, what are you going to do when the data is growing at the rate Jeff has, you know, has mentioned? And it's only going to get worse um, you know, uh, here on end. Organizations and companies are just acquiring more and more data. And as Jeff mentioned, with this data, you have to generate insights. And there's insights to be gained from your customers, which are the most profitable customers, which are the least profit profitable customers. If you're an airline, what routes are the most profitable? What's the cost of those routes? Things of that nature. Um, your supply chain, your you know, trading partners and things of that, of all that. And if you're not able to generate those positive insights or even negative insights based on the information at hand, you're just still producing the same old books at the same time of the month based on the same forecast. Again, I can see why you're not valuable to your organization. So you know, my, my plea is to all FP&A professionals listening to this, Take this to heart. I mean, there is a. Uh, there, I mean, you, it's no longer business as usual. It's time to make some serious changes. Thank you very much. Handwriting's on the wall. I sense Brian Kalish. You're up next. Comments, please, on what Jeff introduced and/or process comments. Go ahead, Brian. Well, I think it's fascinating. You know, process was just you know affirming what I had said earlier that nothing's changed in 30 years. That 70 percent of activity is is low value, and I love the term. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, dark data. I hadn't heard that before. I think that's a great term. You know, we're all kind of geeks, so we're throwing numbers around. So the the term that I love recently was, you know, when we talk about how much data is being generated, is we're moving towards Bronto bytes, which is 10 to the 27th power. So just to add on, I mean, we're talking about structured, unstructured, external, internal data that we've got to be able to manipulate. And, you know, the point is, and, I, and I've said it, and you, the, everyone on the call has been talking about it, is you can't throw humans and spreadsheets at this problem anymore. One of the challenges is that humans are terrible at finding trends they're not looking for. They're absolutely outstanding at finding things they're looking for. But when you think about this amount of data that's out there, you've got to be leveraging technology to see, you know, early trends so you can make those better, faster, smarter decisions. So on, you know, for a bank, right, identifying fraud sooner than a human could ever do. You know, looking for opportunities, as, as Press was talking about, on airlines. What's a better way to fly? Is there a better time we should be flying? What aircraft can be we be using? So we've moved to this world where all these questions that we couldn't answer before, we truly can. And again, it goes back to the quote on Teller and why it's so important to me. When I tell people that they can get the answers to their questions in minutes instead of days, they you know fold their arms and think that I'm talking about magic. And no, the technology exists out there. You know, and, and what's great is you don't have to blow up what you have. It's really what I, what I like. And the term that I use for it is, you know, is are you, do you really have a, a modern analytics booster hub, right? You're taking the data that you have. You're taking the technology that you already have. But just giving yourself the ability to have those speeds to insight at the speed of thought. Because we're operating in a world where, you know, predicting what's going to happen in three months, you know, that's, you might as well, well, if Vegas were open, you might as well just go to Vegas, right? <laughs> Nobody knows what's going to happen in three months. So what we have to be able to do is take information as we're seeing it in as close to real time as possible to help us make those better, faster, smarter business decisions. Thank you very much, Jeff. Good topic all the way around. It's making me think somebody brought up airlines. Pross, you talked about airlines. 
everything has changed. It's not how many planes are we flying and how many routes. It's how many routes are we opening? How many people can we safely put on the plane? Is somebody going to send a, a Twitter, a tweet stream out showing that people are sitting shoulder to shoulder with masks or no masks on a plane? What's the impact on the reputation of the airline? What is it going to say to the people who flew and thought they would have a spare seat in between? How many routes do they dare fly? How many people need to get from point A to point B and that route is no longer active on that airline where it, it sounds to me like FPA, they're not going to sleep for a long time. Pras, am I right? How, how do you plan this stuff? It's day by day, reputation by reputation, social media picture. But Pras, you want to talk to that for a second? Yeah, I mean, nor should they sleep for a while. I mean, they've got a lot of, I mean, let's be <laughs> honest, step, right? Hold on, Pras, never step on the left. You get a good laugh, letter by letter, every laugh. <laughs> okay, you can go now. <laughs> yeah, and nor should they sleep. I mean, to be honest, I mean, this it's really, it's its its a terrible situation for the uh, FPNA to be in. But on the flip side, it's an amazing situation for them to be able to prove their value. Imagine being in a world where you as an FPNA, where everybody saw you as a structured function of the organization, where you just did the, uh, business as usual. Now you're at the crux of making decisions. You're at the, you are able to present opportunities, alternatives with math behind it as well. And people are looking to you for guidance. So I used to always say, and I, you know, I think you've heard this, Bonnie, when I was an FPNA, I was by far the worst financial analyst of all time, hands down. Nobody can beat how bad I was. Primarily because when people came to me, I always said, I'll get back to you. If people are saying, I'll get back to you in this day and age, I mean, you shouldn't be working in this space anymore. You've really got to be working. I mean, there's so many alternatives to evaluate. I mean, these alternatives are changing by the day. Um, I think for earlier, we talked about different stages of the economy right now in different regions, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, and how that affects individuals, but that also affects organizations and how they how it impacts their business. So as an FP&A individual, if you're not impacting the effect of these stages on your business and presenting alternatives. And um, yes, you might be doing that in Excel now, but by showing that value, maybe it's time to being able to start investing in technology to help you support this. So you can do that with visualization and analytics to help communicate better as well. Thank you very much. Anybody want to add to process commentary on that or Jeff, you have something you want to say or Brian, you're good. Well, process is exactly right. People have to change and, Brian even alluded to this. As humans, we're not good at seeing patterns or even remembering data that, that isn't in the now. There's so much information we get overloaded. Does anyone recall what the big crisis was in 2020 at the start of the year? No. no. Weren't there fundraisers for the fires in Australia? Right. In yep. late December and early January? No one's talking yep. about that because we got overwhelmed with being locked down because of the pandemic. And then now here in the US and, and worldwide, there are protests about important issues are about people. Mm -hmm. We forget things and we get overwhelmed from all viewpoints with statistics. So the danger of data is it becomes statistics. And Mark Twain made this phrase popular. I don't believe he actually coined the phrase, but there's three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> so we have to be careful. We don't let statistics drive all of our decisions, but you, you've got to start to, to, you've got to change what you're doing. Otherwise you're going to go through that same Excel spreadsheet process 30 times this year to account for the worldwide pandemic rather than having the machine do that for you. And then looking at it and going of these 30, these three make sense. And I can move forward with these three because I don't have time to go run it 30 times by myself. Jeff, should FP&A be sleeping? Pras said no. Should they be awake 24-7 right now as far as the human mind can stretch them? What do you think? 
they need to go find an old case of Jolt Cola and, and pull an all-nighter <laughs> or four. <laughs> Brian Kalish, what about those sleepless nights? Agree or disagree? Well, I think it's incredible because one of the questions that I always get, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I get to travel around the world and people are saying, do, you know, this is you know, BC before COVID um, was, you know, do, do FP&A people around the world work insane hours? And the answer was yes. Yes. I would always say, it. you know, this is before the current situation. Yeah. We work eight days a week, 26 hours a day. Um, and then you've just supercharged that, you know, yeah, everyone's gotten their jolt cola. Um <laughs> I just think, you know, you think about the, you know, the change that needs to happen in real time, right? We're in June. And so if you think about organizations that are on a December 31st fiscal, they're getting ready to fire up for budget season, right? And what, think about, let's say it took 90 days last year, 19, to, to put the budget together. Okay, well, that was 90 days of work that was just worthless, right? There's no value to the budget that we did last year, given what happened this year. So as we're moving forward in 2020, does it make sense to start putting together the budget for 2021 when I can't tell you what August is going to look like? And so I think that's going to be one of the challenges for organizations. Are they going to be able to prioritize what the new current new normal, because there's the current new normal, and then there's going to be the new new normal when we come out of this, to basically say, it's not going to be as tight as we've done in previous years because our, you know, our, our vision is just so much shorter right now. And, and, Instead of spending a lot of time, money, and resources on resources on on budgeting, shouldn't it be much more on forecasting? Again, shouldn't we be putting much more of our resources and time in taking what's really going on and getting a better idea of what might be happening one month, two month, three month out? So I do think that'll be a lesson. Uh, I'm not a fan of budgets, um, so I'm get, kind of giving my, my my hand away a little bit. But I think there's going to be much more of a focus on planning and forecasting than on budgeting, just because it's not a terribly efficient process, BC, and certainly not AC. Brian well, Kalis, you, you, I want to say you just gave me your prediction for the crystal ball. Jeff, you can give yours now because we just have a few minutes left. Jeff Hattendorf, you're up. I just think that that the not sleeping just before this gets lost is not about all the doing extra work. It's about not recognizing the opportunity that there is to improve how you live the live, live life as an FP&A person. Brian referenced something that I think Warren Buffett said about 20 years ago, the corporate budgeting process is one of the biggest wastes of time in an organization. He believes in the forecasting because forecasting is how you visualize the future of this, of this organization, good, bad, and otherwise, so I can react as things happen in real time. The corporate budget is a sandbagging exercise and how do I get my biggest bonus possible? It limits the company. Organizations have to move to tools that allow them to begin to uncover the value in their dark data. You don't have to look at anyone else's data. Just look at your own dark data and see what you can find. And then use these tools to do all kinds of simulations so that you can know before the next pandemic hits or the next major crisis hits, what do you do if there's something that happens that, that disrupts your supply chain for 90 days? How do you manage cash? I have a client right now that because we're not in our office printing things, they're, they're not making any money because they don't sell the printers, they lease the printers. And it's, by, it's per page. So if you're not printing stuff, there's no revenue coming in. Mm-hmm. So how do companies like that exist in a world where no one goes to the office? This new world we're living in, we're all calling in from home. Normally I would be on the show from my office with the phone. Instead we're on Zoom with headsets the near future has to include for everybody who's an FP&A, a recognition that there is a problem. And the problem is we have too much information 
There's too much volatility. The speed of thought, to borrow Brian's phrase, really requires us to use better tools to let us do things faster and more effectively. Thank you very much, Jeff. And Pras, I'm going to ask you to take to state your prediction around the first sentence in your statement number three, which is the potential for FP&A is unlimited. I think that's a nice optimistic way to close. We just have a couple of minutes left. So Pras, why don't you take about two minutes for your prediction and then I'll thank everybody. Go ahead, Pras. Perfect. Um, so I, I, I made that quote, but I, you know, I start thinking about the unlimited possibilities. And I think maybe uh, we start on that journey with just a simple step of changing the mindset of FP&A. Uh, primarily, as you know, Jeff mentioned that the budget, there's going to be many organizations that are going to start the budgeting process this August, September. And I hope that many of them will change their ways and think about the fact that, forget the technology, the process we have is completely broken because what's the point of doing a 12-month slash 16-month budget that makes zero sense because nobody has any idea what's coming up in the future. I mean, yeah, you know, obviously in the U.S. where you guys are, there's an election coming up. People talk about this pandemic, maybe a phase two of it. And if you're going to build a uh, budget, it's going to be useless because you're not going to be taking into these, these factors into consideration. So maybe it's as Jeff has mentioned, as Brian mentioned, my crystal ball prediction is that the best-in-class organizations are going to say, to heck with this budget. We're going to move into a forecast, a forecast that has a couple of different scenarios based on external factors that we can't control. And that is going to propel these organizations to look in introspectively and say, you know what, it's time to change the way we've done things because things are different. The world is different. And going forward in the 2020s, we're going to make you know what we've learned in 2020, 2022, 23, 24, it's going to impact the way we do things a lot differently. Thank you very much. Thank you to the three of you. Pras, I'm going to predict that you're going to have all three of you back sometime during 2020 to update on, on more insights on the speed of thought and on dark data. And Jeff Hattendorf, you are a font of quotes from famous people. I thought I had a lot at my fingertips. You just one up me today, kid, and I appreciate that. I love the quote. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff wins. <laughs> I thought I was the quote master. I'm the I'm the quote investigator master. Um, anyway, I just want to thank the three of you. I want to also thank our engineer today. We were privileged to have Ryan Treasure, the VP of everything at World Talk Radio, Voice America, Business Channel. And I want to say thank you to the sponsors of the series, Chris Grundy at SAP, Birgit Starman's at SAP, and Pras. I don't know if you're officially a sponsor, but I consider you one because you're here all the time and you put together such great overviews, great topic today. So here's my call to action. Everybody's ready. Fasten your seatbelt. And as I like to say, my car is getting three months to the gallon. How's yours doing? <laughs> what are you waiting for? Find a plane, find a bike, find a trike. In my community, it's all golf carts. What can I tell you? Don't even ask. Go out and be a game changer today, just like Brian Kalish at Kalish Consulting just like Jeff Hattendorf at MacroSpec, and of course, just like Pross Chatterjee at SAP. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Be safe, be smart, be kind, be considerate, and go do something important today. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP, helping you to operate profitably and adapt continuously. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to hashtag SAPRADIO and join host Bonnie D. Graham on the Business Channel, wishing you a game-changing week.